Judges 16, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we will overpower him, and that we may bind him to humble him. And we will, give, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So, Deli- so Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Miller. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Ben. I am the associate pastor here and thrilled to have you join us as we take a look at this very, very old document uh, of a story that happened long ago with things that may seem so bizarre and foreign to your everyday experience uh, that you almost write it off. But yet, I think in this story, there is something that captures our heart's desires as humans, the desire to be self-sufficient. Let me start with a quick story. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm weird in this. I have you know, these stories from like your early childhood that have been told to you over and over throughout the years, stories that like you have an odd... Um, an odd pride in, like uh, stories that, that, that like when you look at them on the face, you're like, what is that? Well, here's how the story goes. Story goes, I'm four, little Ben, four years old, is at home with mom and um, I'm very dedicated to my noontime lunch meal. Like precisely at 12 p.m., I needed to have my lunch. And mom, uh, that day, for whatever reason, was happened to be on a phone call. You know, this is back in the days of, of home phones where, like, the cord was, like, two fo- fo- football fields long, you know. So my, the, the phone was in the kitchen, but this cord would run all the way down the hallway into the living room. And mom was, was sitting there chatting with a sister or a friend or, or somebody, catching up on life. But the most important fact was that she missed 12 p.m. So little four-year-old Ben... Uh, decided it was time to take matters into my own hand. And so I scaled the counter uh, up onto the counter. I located the peanut butter and the jelly and the bread and made myself a sandwich. And I ate it. That's the story. That's, that, that's it. I made a sandwich and I ate it. It's really, it's a terrible story, right? It's a story that goes nowhere. It's a story that has no ending. And yet it's a story that I found myself telling my own children. It's a story that will come up uh, occasionally in my family. Why? Why is it that I love this story so much? Because it seems to me that this story represents that there is something innately self-sufficient in me. That there is something in me and my personality and my skills that that when confronted with an obstacle, even as a four-year-old, I could overcome it by myself. I would see the the hill of the counter, and I could tackle it, that I could take care of myself. 
And maybe you've heard stories like that of you. Or maybe you can relate to the stories of, of growing older, right? And I show up on the first day of kindergarten and Miss Heipel comes into my classrooms with her puppets and she tells me the most important thing that you need to, to be successful in life is to have a high self-esteem. My dad wanted to sign me up for wrestling so that I could learn how to defend myself. I was told the stories and the legends of my grandfather, though, that I could aspire to be a, a self-made entrepreneur like they were. In high school, I, I learned pretty quickly how to pretend to be uh, self-confident or self-assured. Marveled at friends who were self-taught musicians or, or self-trained athletes. Going into college, you learn that one of the best attributes you can show on your resume, on your application for college, is that you are, are self-motivated, that you're a self-learner, that you take your education, you take your work seriously. We're told over and over and over again that one of the highest attributes that you can aspire to in our world is that you would be a self-sufficient individual. And yet, I think the author of Judges wants us to take a look at that. I think the author of Judges wants us to question our assumptions of what is good in the world because there was nobody who was as self-sufficient as Samson. There was nobody who was as self-sufficient as Samson. He had, the, the, the story goes in the Bible, that he had superhuman strength, that he was able to, to, to defeat and overpower any and every obstacle that comes his way. And yet the story of Samson is not one that praises him for his self-sufficiency, but one that is displayed as a tragedy. It's not a superhero flick of a, of a hero that saves the day. It is a train wreck of watching someone destroy their own life. Samson, as we find out in the story, is a man who, become, who is ruined by the lies he tells himself. And so while I want us to take a look at his story this morning, I want us to notice two, two lies that he must tell himself, two lies that, that depend on one another for him to maintain his, his, his pattern of life in this world, two lies that undo him and one truth that can offer him hope. Two lies and a truth. King, 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 keep up with this. Lie number one. Samson has to believe that he is capable of running his own life. Samson has to, to reiterate to himself that he is capable, that he is, uh, uh, that he is strong enough, that he has the, the presence of mind and the ability to control his environment. And we see it right off the bat in this passage that Miller read for us, right? This little short mini story that, that goes in front of the bigger, longer story in the text. And it's a, te it's a story that is very emblematic of all of the stories about Samson. Samson goes and he gets himself into a, a, a rough place, into a pickle, right? He finds himself asleep in a city that is fortified and they close the gates and they lock him in. They surround the house with soldiers to defeat him. And yet, Samson is able to, to use that strength that he has. It says he goes and he rips up the gates of the city. Now, we have no idea what these gates actually look like, but I'm, I'm guessing you probably can't go rip up the fence post in your yard, right? 
There's something extraordinary in Samson's ability to be self-sufficient, to save himself. And yet we see that, that even with Samson, that's not the whole story. Like Samson, though, we are told over and over again in our lives that either you have succeeded, right? And so you can have all these notches on your belt that you'll get through this hard time because you got through that time and you got laid off. Or, or, or you got through that time when you, 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 uh, you failed the bar exam. Or you got through this uh, drama with your best friend. Or you haven't succeeded, you haven't succeeded, and, and so you think to yourself, I need to do better. I need to be more. I can't keep up with the pattern of life. But always we are telling ourselves that our lives will be good. Our lives will be full if we are capable, if we are competent to lead them. The stories surround us like the story surrounded Samson, right? Here's a, here's a silly example, but a serious one. A couple weeks ago on Twitter... Um, the great philosopher of our age, Kim Kardashian, uh, tweeted out this, this tweet, right? She says, I have the best advice for women in business. Get your blankety-blank up and work. It seems like nobody wants to work these days. And immediately Twitterverse, as Twitterverse is prone to do, immediately breaks up into two opposing sides, right? The one side reads uh, Kim's tweet and is like, yeah, yeah, if I just worked a little bit harder, if I uh, was able to market myself the way that Kim does, if I, if I took education seriously and pursued the law, uh, a law license like Kim is pursuing, if I, if I tried to improve my appearance, if I did what Kim is doing, then maybe I could compete in this world. And so we convince ourselves of all sorts of techniques of how we could sleep better, how we could eat better, how we could just be better humans in general. But on the other side of Twitterverse was the people who looked at Kim Kardashian and be like, who are you to talk about work? That's an unrealistic standard. Look at, look at all the privileges that you were given with. Look at the family you were born into, the money that you inherited. You were, you were handed a, a, a platform on a silver platter. Why are you patting yourselves on the back? None of the rest of us can keep up with you. But do you notice even those people who reject Kim's message are affirming its premise? They're affirming that we ought to be competent to run our own lives, that we ought to be able to, to take care of ourselves. And this little microquism of, of silly social media debate, what nobody is saying is, is maybe it's not human to have high self-esteem. Maybe it's not wired into us to succeed against every adversity. Maybe we don't have the strength, the strength to put our lives together. And so we go through life telling this lie to ourselves over and over again and living in a world that tells us this lie over and over again. You need better techniques or you need to get out of the situation because you can only be in a situation where you are competent and you can only improve yourself if you are capable of running your life. It's a lie. 
It's a lie that's as obvious as we see here in the text. Samson, as strong as he is, has no ability to know what Delilah is doing in the background. Samson has chosen a woman he has loved, and he has asserted his ability, his capability to hold on to her, to to sustain a relationship with her. But what he can't control is what becomes his undoing. And if Samson, the strongest man in the world, is not capable of running his own life, maybe we should second guess our assumption that we are. But that's just the first lie. There's a second lie that has to go along with it. Not only Samson has to tell himself, I'm capable to run my own life. He also has to tell himself that I know what is best for me. He has to tell himself, I and I alone am able to make the choices that will lead to my flourishing, that will lead to my wholeness. And we see it in this bizarre exchange that happens between Delilah, right? Just, we're, just I don't know if you heard when Miller read this. Let me reiterate to you the words that Delilah says to him. So Delilah said to Samson, now, of course, he has no idea that she's planning to sabotage him, right? But, but these are the words she says to him. Um, Please, tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Right, you and I sitting here a couple thousand years later, we look at that, those words and we go, uh, Samson, I think some red lights ought to be flashing in your mind. I, I think something ought to be going, red alert, red alert, red alert, right? If a friend comes to you and says, tell me your deepest, darkest secret, the secret that would uh, completely destroy your life if it was found out, would you please tell that to me right now? So going, why? Well, why do you want to know this information? Samson seems to have some concerns at the very least, but he, he plays along because he thinks what is best for him is to, to stay in the house with Delilah. That to, to maintain the, the peace of the household is, is most important to him. And so he comes up with a lie. He says, uh, well, okay, um, I'll tell you what. If you, take, uh, if you take seven fresh bow strings, you know, like the strings you use to make a bow and arrow, if you use seven of those that are fresh, they've never been dried out, and you time me with seven of those, then I'm weak sauce. You get, anyone could, 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 could subdue me, Right? And lo and behold, he wakes up the next morning tied together by seven bowstrings. Odd coincidence, right? So Delilah says, hey, you lied to me. Why are you lying to me? And tell me the real secret. And Samson's apparently not very good on his feet, right? His second lie is not too much different. He says, okay, wait, maybe it wasn't bowstrings. It's actually fresh ropes. If you find some fresh ropes, ropes that have never been used before, ropes that have all of their strength, and you tie me with those... Then I'm fresh bait. Anyone will be able to come and get me. Lo and behold, the next morning he wakes up with tied together by fresh ropes. And so Delilah comes to him again and says, There is not going to be peace in this house until you tell me where your strength lies. And so Samson comes up with a third lie. He says, if you take the seven locks of my hair and you weave them together in your loom, then I'll become weak as any other man. And lo and behold, the third time he wakes up the next morning with his hair woven into the loom, which he readily breaks apart and smashes. 
And by this point, we're like sitting there watching Samson pulling out her hair going, what is wrong with you? Can't you see what is happening? Can't you see that this woman is your ruin? But he can't. Samson doesn't know what is good for him. The irony is is that we readily admit this kind of thing. Y'all remember this old song, When a Man Loves a Woman? Some of you who lived before, you know, at least 1991, you know, you might remember Michael Bolton singing it. In the 60s, another singer named Percy Sledge, she was number one on the, the Billboard list. And it's a, it's, a, it's a love song, right? And, it's a, and it starts off really sweet. When a man loves a woman, he can't keep his mind on nothing else. He trade the world for the good thing he's found. And then it starts getting kind of weird. If she's bad, he can't see it. She can do no wrong. Gets even weirder. He turned his back on his very best friend if he put her down. Later on, he says, if she's playing him for a fool, he's the last one to know. You see, we readily admit in our songs, in fact, it's even spun off as being romantic, right? Like, oh, you are so ignorant of what is good for you. You are so ignorant of what will lead to health and flourishing that, that we actually celebrate the fact that you're willing to throw away a best friend, that you're willing to, to put your life and your emotions at stake on behalf of some woman, even if she is a evil woman, that you won't trust what anyone else has to tell you. It's a bankrupt idea, but it's one that we keep coming back to. It's one that we hold on to, that I know what is best for me, that I can read uh, the, 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 the world that I live in, and I can choose the best path, because any other choice terrifies us. It terrifies us to believe that somebody else might know what is best for us. It terrifies us to believe that we may not be in control. You see, long before Samson was seduced by Delilah, he was seduced with this lie that he and he alone could define what was good for him, that he and he alone could choose what is right for him. And we have two. It's omnipresent in our, in our culture. The, the message is that you are your own north star to guide you home. That you if, you, if you're discontent or you're unhappy, then you must dig down deep within you to discover that which truly makes you you. That only you know what is best for you. And so we define our lives by coming up with uh, the ways that we want to spend our money, the ways that we will feel good, the way that we will feel uh, affirmed. We spend our time staking our identity on, on the things that bring us pleasure, and we spend our lives pushing, putting limits on those who, who, who speak some other truth into our lives. We ostracize them. We push them away because we don't want to believe that, that maybe, just maybe, we don't know what is best for us. And so we, uh, we who are lonely and, 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 and afraid will withdraw ourselves even further from relationships when we feel ostracized. 
When we're defensive, we'll be willing to prosecute it to, to the nth degree and implode any relationship around us. We will, we will take what, uh, a depression or a sadness and rather than admit that maybe we don't know what is best for us, we'll try to self-medicate and to escape. But if Samson couldn't tell what was best for him, if Samson couldn't read the, the, the mysterious tea leaves of Delilah continuously attacking him, why do you think you are able to tell what is best for you? Well, let's bring this back, because it's not just two lies. There's two lies that Samson has to tell himself to sustain his pattern of life, but there is a truth that finds him in the end. A truth that finds him in the end, and it is this. Belonging to God is Samson's only hope. And belonging to God is your only hope. You see, Samson finds himself a victim of his own lies because sure enough, he, he does tell Delilah that if his hair is shaved and his Nazarite vow will end and, and this unique blessing that has been given to him will be taken away. And Delilah, sure enough, follows through and, and shaves his head, and he awakes weak and is able to be imprisoned and bonded and shackled. And the Philistines gouge out his eyes and set him to slave labor, and it is only then that Samson is able to see his life clearly. He's not capable. He's not capable to escape from every harm. He's not capable to sustain his life. And that he was wrong. That what he thought was best for him, the relationship that he thought met, made his life his life, is what led to his ruin. And so it seems for the first time Samson accepts his own humanity. But Samson's story isn't over yet. Because you see, Samson as a prisoner is, is taken into this a room full of Philistines. And you remember Samson's job, his calling on his life was that he was to, to be the deliverer of Israel, that he was to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. But he spent his whole life just trying to satisfy himself, trying to find out what made him happy. And so he, he enters into this room, and, and let me just read here what happens. Samson, with his eyes gouged out, shackled, is brought in to entertain uh, 3,000 guests in there. And Samson recognizes that he is powerless to do anything. And he says, calls out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars in which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them. And his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. And so the dead whom he killed in his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Samson drove his life into a train wreck. Because he thought he knew what he wanted. And because he thought he was capable to get it. But in his last breath, in his end, he realized that no matter what he had destroyed, no matter what confidence he had betrayed, he had not destroyed God's ability to save him. And so in his darkest moment, at least half-heartedly, Samson recognizes his trust 
is in God, that God is the only one who can sustain him. But notice the truth I said was belonging to God is our only hope. Belonging to God is our only hope. Because here's why. We can look at Samson's story and we can come up with the moral, right? That, that only God is, is, is capable to run your life. Only God can know uh, what is good for you. And we can, we can talk about that in this sort of self-motivating sort of way. Oh, yeah, I need to, to let go and let God. I need to, I need to release my control and, and give it to God. And, and what we're really doing is we're saying... Um, I'm capable of turning to God, and I'll know the right way of how to turn to God when it does. We're just replacing self-sufficiency with self-sufficiency, although it'll be a Christian sort of self-sufficiency that makes us feel good. But the story of the Bible is not that we don't uh, that 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 we can be different from Samson; that we can choose some alternative path. The story of the Bible culminates in the story of one who, like Samson, faced an excruciating decision, one whose soul was vexed to death, the text tells us. But see, Samson was vexed to death because he felt like he had no way out. He could not uh, avoid the calamity. He had to choose between the woman he loved, and he couldn't imagine life without, and, and his, his impeding ruin. But Jesus, in the garden before his crucifixion, didn't just have a way out. He knew his way out. He knew that he was capable, that a, a thousand angels could be at his command in a second. He knew, that he, uh, he, he knew that he felt like it would be best if, if this crucifixion, this impeding death did not come. And yet Jesus in the garden prays the prayer that not a single person in this room is able to pray. He says, God, if it is your will, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. But if it's not, not my will but yours be done. So the salvation of the human race comes not because humans uh, are sufficient or even that humans have self-sufficient trust in God. The salvation of humankind comes when God as man chooses to die to himself, to give of himself because he knows he belongs to God. And here's the real mystery of, of, of the faith, is that Jesus didn't just do that as an example to us. Jesus did that because that's how his family is defined. And so when we go from this place, yes, I want you to repent of, of thinking that you are, are sufficient, that you are capable of running your own life. I want you to repent of thinking that you can define what is good and what is right in your world. But I can't give you the power to do that. The only way that you will do those things is if you are walking in life hand in hand with the Savior who claimed you. The only way that you will see the lies that are being told to you by the world around you, the only way you'll identify the lies you tell yourself is if Jesus, who has gone before you, has already brought you into the freedom of belonging to God. If Jesus has already purchased you with his blood and brought you home. Jesus is our hope. If we're to abandon self-sufficiency and all the dead ends that it leads to, there is only one hope, and that is belonging to God in Jesus. 
And so our invitation this morning is to look at our lives, to confess freely those areas that we desire to be uh, capable where we're not, those areas in our lives where we uh, believe deep down inside that we are right and that we know what is best for us and, and to hold those hands with open hands. Because if, if you can't trust and belong to God, then you are alone and our ruin is sure. So join me this morning in confessing our self-sufficiency and turning to the one who can free us. Pray with me. God, we thank you that you have loved us that you have cared for us, that you have entered into time and place. And while we keep running back to ourselves, we keep trying to find ways to pat ourselves in the back, to think ourselves as whole and as healed, you invite us week after week to discover that it is only in you that we have life. Father, let us find our life in you this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.